You're listening to John Brawley and the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, it's going. It is certainly <laughs> going. And uh, you know what else is going? Our editor, Ben Katz, is going back to L.A. That's right. It'll be great to have him uh, local again. Yes, it will. It will. If if I was allowed to hang out with people, I'd, I'd uh, go buy him a beer, even though I don't really drink. Yeah, you, you know, well, you'd buy him one. I know. I can watch him drink. I can have a, you know, a Coke Zero. Ginger ale. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So John Brawley's on the show. You know who John Brawley is? Uh, I, for the purposes of this conversation, I do not. Please uh, tell me all about it. <laughs> okay. So John Brawley is a very talented cinematographer. He's also a, a very, very long time customer of Hot Rod Cameras, which is wonderful. And, and that's actually how he and I first became acquainted. And he's used our proprietary original products and technology and all kinds of things over the years. But he just completed a series which uh, is getting incredible reviews and is up for serious Emmy consideration called The Great. It's on Hulu. And if you are not aware of it, you need to be aware of The Great. You actually told me about it when you first told me that you were interviewing John Brawley. And I watched a bit of it and my wife fell in love with it. And she was way, way into it. So, Ilya, what do we want to talk about for our close focus today? Uh, I think we have to talk about the $70 million budget movie that is supposedly going to have a lead protagonist, which is artificial intelligence. Wait a minute. So you're talking about the 2002 movie Simone starring Al Pacino and Catherine Keener, directed by Andrew Nichol, clearly, in which I'm going to read you the synopsis, by the way, just just so our audience can hear it. A producer's film is endangered when his star walks off. So he decides to digitally create an actress to substitute for the star, becoming an overnight sensation that everyone thinks is a real person. Is Um, that what you're talking about? No, <laughs> I'm talking about the oh. the 2021 slated movie that has got some major financing behind it from people who have uh, produced a bunch of other big movies in the past. Bonded Capital financed movies like To the Bone and the Oscar nominated uh, Loving Vincent and uh, Belgium based Happy Moon Productions and New York's 1010 Global Media have committed to back this project, which is called B. Uh, it's science fiction. And so life imitates art or whatever Simone was. I, I don't I don't know if that's the case. Supposedly the story kind of follows the creation of this robot artificial intelligence sort of thing mm. that uh, Japanese scientist Hiroshi Ishiguro has come up with. And I don't know if you've ever seen anything about him, but he made like a doppelganger of himself as a robot and kind of put it out there. And he insisted it wasn't creepy. But oh, Lord, is it creepy? It is like the uncanniest of uncanny valleys. And uh, uh, I mean, I, I found it to be kind of fuckable myself, but, you know, that's just me. <laughs> oh, thank you for going there, because because uh, yeah. I, I wasn't, so I was not going to go there. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm interested, uh, I'm very interested to see how this goes. You know, the thing that I probably will pay the most attention to, because we've all seen digitally created people at this point. Sure. And they can be done somewhat convincingly sort of kind of but the one thing that they still rely on good old meat to make and that's the human voice so i'm very interested to see if they synthesize a voice 
they can, and it can be done very, very well these days. I mean, much, much better than, than I would have expected, but I will tell you. I've heard it and it's okay. It's, you I don't, know, uh, you, I don't right. know if you've heard right. it actually, because uh, I have, I have, I have no, I don't think I've got, 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 got a little higher. <laughs> no, uh, but then I, I well, they, uh, I do get to be privy to a little bit of this sort of like very cutting edge tech through the ASC Tech Committee, which uh, which I which I sit on and, and attend. So you so you work for the CIA? No, oh, no. Uh, a- ASC Tech Committee. It's a volunteer okay. group. You know, it's a the American Society uh-huh. of Cinematographers. I, I'm on one of the people on the Tech I'm, Committee. I'm telling everybody that you are a secret. Uh, that, that, would, that would be so much more operative. interesting. Uh, th- this uh, <laughs> let, me, let me tell you, um, occasionally like. I Ironically, specializing in audio. <laughs> what, what's what's pretty entertaining, actually, though, is if you go to some of these tech committee meetings and you're like sitting in the front row, like I tend to, and then you turn around and you look at how many people who you know and are friends of yours who are dozing off and asleep because they usually happen, you know, later in the day, and you know, it's mm. a it's an older crowd predominantly, and sometimes it's pretty heady stuff, and other times it's it's fascinating, but when it's a particularly drier subject perhaps it's uh cure for insomnia going on but uh, also we do really interesting and really good sort of work and we had a special presenter come in recently and played the samples of the computer generated voice and the human Mm -hmm. actor that it was imitating and asked you to identify which was real and which was not and I picked the computer as the real one three times in a row. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I'd never had that happen before. But it was it was uh, stunning. And they're using it via uh, they're, they're getting that to this point via machine learning, which essentially is giving, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of samples to a computer over and over and over again to say, oh, now you know what this sounds like. Now you here's your chance. You create it. And, uh, this is the future of filmmaking, and I, for one, look forward to doing Meisner acting exercises with my calculator. <laughs> um, there is some of this, and I remember hearing a story many years ago, actually, about someone who worked, uh, who, who was a graduate of the MIT Media Lab, and they basically pulled in an elaborate prank, this is probably going back 20, 30 years, telling, uh, telling I think it was the Screen Actors Guild, that they had created an artificial intelligent actor, and they were going to show, like, a presentation, but they couldn't do it because the actor had become so uh, self-obsessed, they had decided they couldn't go on living, and the AI committed suicide. So, <laughs> and uh, supposedly, they did not ever reveal the hack at all while this was going on, and then, like, left and left a room full of stunned SAG executive leadership committee That's going, interesting. what the hell did we just see? So... Uh, and th- this was a long time ago. So, uh, so, 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 given your your belief that we can synthesize an absolutely convincing human voice, but that uh, robots are still creepy, how close do you think this movie is going to get to crossing the uncanny valley? I think it's going to fail. I think I think in that regard, it's it's setting itself up for failure. I think what really would make it interesting is if they tried to have the AI not play an AI if they had the AI actually play a human but because Mm -hmm. it's going to be playing an artificial intelligence they get off the hook for however lousy it might be I don't think it's going to ever convince people I I do think you have to hedge that bet in a way somehow like what you just described because it's gonna be a little hokey look I mean it's it's supposed to be convincing as an AI. It's not supposed to be convincing as a person. I don't which, think that they can. Which I'll buy. I think I think that that's viable. But yeah, you're right. If you had like an episode of 24 where Jack Bauer was played by an AI, suddenly it would be just weird. I don't think it would work well. And I think it might be like 100 monkeys with a typewriter, which I think mm-hmm. I alluded to last week. But it's 
See, that would be brave, though. <laughs> have you read the scripts that have been written by AIs? I have, and they're so nonsensical. And they're brilliant. <laughs> I think that we should have, it should be AI theater, and we should have a movie, the first movie written by and starring AI. Well, it can be directed by, by a human, this one. Um, I, I will have to say that, you know, it's interesting the Hollywood Reporter's take on this whole story about the artificial intelligence starring in this movie. One of the things they mention is that they're proceeding with this project as like a, a feature is that the lead actress is also immune to COVID-19. And I kind of feel like, is sure. is that the reason really? I mean, I, I don't think that's the reason. I don't think that for once, I think COVID-19 is not the driving fact, you know, feature behind yeah, this casting choice. that sounds choice. like some hokey way to get spin from some PR office that wasn't working that hard that day. Well, supposedly this follows a scientist who discovers dangers associated with a program he created to perfect human DNA and helps the artificially intelligent woman he designed escape. It also sounds a little bit sort of deus ex machina to me there. So I don't know. I, I don't know what it's going to be. Every story like this eventually becomes Frankenstein. They all eventually become the same story as Frankenstein. Well, okay. So at some point, though, the artificial intelligence is going to have to appear and sound and perform so great that it would fool people in the story into thinking that they are real. And I, nothing I have seen so far that that comes from this laboratory has been able to fool me like that. But I have a feeling there might be some, you know, it's Hollywood. There might be some special effects or some trickery in which, you know, maybe the AI composed uh, some sort of responses and sort of emote some sort of here, manifestation. Here, I, I, I've, of of emotion. I've got the pitch. Yeah. I've got the total pitch. Okay, ready. So in ready. order to appear uh fully real. Yeah. She gets out of the laboratory. Yeah. And she gets a job as a truck stop waitress at a Stuckey's <laughs> in Texas. Like along the highway, along I-10 in Texas. And it almost works, except even though she's the size of a normal person, she weighs fifteen hundred pounds because of all the gears and stuff. Yeah, in her. yeah. And the floor and just also, is constantly breaking with every step. And sometimes we can we can hear the servos moving, but the real giveaway is that she has to go plug herself in for two hours a day. Hollywood, you can have it for free. Enjoy. I can't wait to see that movie. I think that we're going to get to see some computer generated animated stuff. We're going to get to see some computer acted scripted stuff coming in the future. But until it is actually something that you are going to want to see or something that is uh, created uh, almost impromptu, knowing what your tastes are, something like, you know, because mm -hmm. people have, have, have theorized this, that like, you know, instantly the video game will make the story for you as you're playing it, or instantly the movie will will write it because it goes, oh, you're watching it and, you're, and mm -hmm. your family's watching it, and now all of a sudden I know what you like, I know the kind of things that you like, here we are, we're just going to play this whole thing out in 3D space and everything else, and I, I will tell you, that is such a... That's such a pipe dream right now. And even then, I'm I think I would, so ar I would argue I would that it do. won't be it won't be as entertaining as you would hope it would be. Like plug in a bunch of variables from like Shakespeare's King Lear and see how it finishes your story when it's finishing it just for you. It's like, oh, he likes, uh, you know, the true facts videos on YouTube. So we'll have King Lear uh, make fun of, uh, you know, aardvarks for a while. I, I think I look forward to my computer masters t telling me stories. I, I always love having these conversations about how stories, you know, like whenever anyone comes along and says, we're going to change the way storytelling works. It's like, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying it's kind of worked the same way for about 5,000. I'll years. say it. You're wrong. The person who's thinking you're, that right now, you're, you're wrong. I, you're most likely wrong. No, I mean, like, I'm, you know, I'm going to be hundred percent on this. They're wrong. They're it, wrong. It, they're wrong know, until every, they're not. But it's everything doesn't have to be Aristotle's poetics. But, uh, you know, I, I've had conversations with people when uh, VR was kind of on the rise. They and were, people wrong. were like, e everything's going to be interactive VR. And I'm like, you know, they were wrong. I'm not. 
It's a game. It, at that point, it's a game, and games are very entertaining, but it's not a story. I mean, I shouldn't say that. Games have a story. I apologize to all the game writers out there. They have amazing writers, but it's just a different kind of storytelling that's not a beginning, middle, end linear story in the same way that a movie or a book or a comic book or a TV show or anything else is. Five years ago, I had people telling me that traditional cinema was dead and everything was going to be VR and better get ready because you're going to be putting on goggles and go into a theater and that's going to be the, the world. And I said bullshit then and I say bullshit now. And the people who said that then, well, clearly it's five years on and they were wrong. Well, those people have <laughs> an Oculus Rift where they can simulate a movie theater and uh, I'm not allowed to go into movie theaters. So <laughs> who's got the last laugh now? You, you know what? E- even if they can simulate a movie theater, that's... <laughs> <laughs> oh man anyway, anyway. So, so so really this uh story has gotten a little bit of heat in the last uh, couple of days i've seen it uh, shared by a bunch of people i think that the uncanny valley is super real and i think that they would be far better by not actually attempting to try to use an ai rather than just actually hiring an actor to do the job i also just like to see actors work but you know what hey try your ai movie who knows remember when final fantasy was coming out oh yeah it was like oh it's all gonna be photo real animation from now on <laughs> you know and the funny thing is like at the time i actually saw that movie in the theater and oh. i remember watching it being like oh my god there's some very convincing shots in that and then it was on cable a few years ago and i watched it and i'm like you're not convinced at all like yeah. mediocre video game graphics i mean it was cutting edge for its time but still not a perfect reproduction of reality by any stretch of the imagination i had a friend who who still was very into computer animation special effects worked for a bunch of different companies like leica and uh he wanted to go opening night and i went with him opening night to go see final fantasy and when i walked out i was like so uh what did you think of all that and he was like yeah you know the the the, uh the hype wasn't real i mean that Mm. was a long time ago now and we're still not there getting closer (laughs) but uh yeah getting closer hey can i give you a, a random small update on something that i talked about a few episodes ago yeah let's do that so i talked about i think it was my short end was miro this uh whiteboard program yeah and I uh, took this idea that I've been kicking around forever for a movie, and I and I decided to kind of do what I would do on a corkboard, except on this virtual whiteboard online. And uh, I still think Miro is a little overpriced for what it is, because in order to have unlimited boards, you have to pay $8 a month, and there has to be two of you. So 16 bucks a month forever to have unlimited boards. You can have three boards for free, which is what I'm goofing around with. But I have to say, it really worked pretty well. I mean, I haven't written the script, and I haven't you know accepted the Oscar for having made the movie yet. However, it was it worked just like putting everything up on a cork board. I was able to kind of lay out all the scenes as I saw them and kick them around, and it works on my phone. There's an app for the phone. It works on the iPad. And so it kind of enabled me to kind of keep the whiteboard experience going whenever I it occurred to me to kind of goof around with it and I you know spent some serious time on it but also you know like if I was watching tv or something and suddenly I had a brainstorm I would add a card or whatever to it and I haven't finished the outline yet at all but I would say in my opinion a very successful experiment with this and I would recommend it to others Nice. We're not sponsored by by Miro, and uh, not at all. I, I, I will just say that that's a that's a ringing endorsement because uh, it is tough to find uh, something that does exactly as nine dollars of corkboard and uh, index cards would once give you and uh, create in the analog space. Well, 
So. I mean, but it's but it's better than that, in my opinion, because it's easy to color code stuff and you can draw arrows from stuff and you can easily rearrange it. And I'm all for the cork boards and the index cards. And uh, Bob and I, Bob DeRosa and I use those when we're uh, developing stuff like Video Palace or the current project, which I'm not allowed to talk about yet. But uh, I, I just kind of wanted to give it a go because since COVID-19 hit, Bob and I had to had to obviously work separately from home, but we still want to have sort of the cork board and it, it kind of set me down the road of looking for for an online replacement and i will say if there are two people working on a miro board it's and that's m-i-r-o by the way if there's two people working on a miro board it's like google docs if you're working on it i'm working on it i can see what you're doing in real time you can see what i'm doing in real time the collaboration is pretty seamless and uh i'm impressed don't know that i'm gonna go as far as subscribing and spending lots of money on it I might just have to shuffle through my free free boards for the time being. I wish that there was a like a one-time fee I could pay for it for a while, like most software, or I wish that I could get, you know, I could pay less indefinitely, but 8 buck 16 bucks a month is I mean that's what we're paying for Zoom. Uh it seems a little slightly high for what you get, but what what do you know? Hmm. Okay, interesting. Very, very anyway. interesting. Yeah, um, thank you for the update. That's really good. Hey, as long as we're doing this, we got a nice, uh, very nice message from a listener in Helsinki, Finland. And oh, nice. Yeah, his name is Yoni. I asked him to please give me a pronunciation for his name. He gave it to me for his first name, but his last name is, I'm going to butcher right now here. I think it is Soikeli. That's the best I can do. Soikeli. Anyway, Yoni was very nice and he wrote a, uh, a quick message that says, I'm a big fan of your podcast. Just finished listening to the episode where you had uh, Yancey Ford and Alan Jacobson talking about Strong Island. What a great content. You guys rock exclamation point. So, nice. Yeah. Thanks, Yoni. That was that was fantastic. Re- really. I'm yeah. really glad that that documentary is uh, really strong material and I think more people should be aware of it. I also got someone who reached out named uh, Michael Colagrossi. He just wanted to send me one quick sentence here. That was awesome. That just said, hey, Ilya, love the podcast, man. Exclamation point. So I, was hey, like, I have I have a tweet to share. Oh, OK, great. It's a very tactful, mild criticism of, of how we did an interview. Oh, OK. I'm ready. It is from, I, can, I can take I, it. I, I can take it too. No, it's from uh, somebody named Justin Rowland. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. And he said he loved hearing from Javier Grobet. Although, uh, though I'm bummed you missed the opportunity to talk about Nacho Libre. And I have to say that was on the list of stuff I wanted to talk to uh, Javier about. As with a lot of things like this, even though uh, our interviews go on for a while, we always ask people if they have a hard out. And when they do, we have to choose which of their projects to talk about because I could uh, run my stinking yap about all of these films forever, as Ilya Kennan will attest. Yes, as something that has happened many times before, and I have had to kick your butt down the road just to get you to yeah. move on. So I'm thinking about Tom Siegel and the Usual Suspects. <laughs> Tom Siegel um, might be the per- perfect example of that. So <laughs> that, could, that could have been the three-part Usual Suspects episode. I would be actually quite happy about that. Although you did encourage me uh, with Jeff Cronenworth to do the All Fight Club episode. Uh, so, you know what? Yeah. I still want that episode. I still. Think I would do the All Fight. Are you fucking kidding me? I would do the All <laughs> Fight so Club episode every all every day of the week. Uh, um, but any. Anyway, no, I, I honestly, I really appreciate Justin's comment. I responded to him and I just appreciate that people are listening and feel free to reach out to either one of us on the social medias whenever you feel like it. I even got one more. Uh, ben, I got one here from Michael Meltzer and he wrote, hi, Ilya, just wanted to say that I've been listening to a lot of cinematography podcast episodes and really enjoy listening to cinematographers and other film professionals talk about their work. 
I am an aspiring post-production engineer who will be moving to Los Angeles after the pandemic is over to start my career at a studio or post house. We'll see you in five years. <laughs> as an avid tech or post engineer. Oh, you're, you're so bitter and jaded. You're, 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 you're exactly exactly the type of people that we have here, Ben. Ben, you... you... I, can't, I, can't, I can't wait to meet you in 2025 when the uh, pandemic is over. I look forward to listening to future episodes. Thanks, Mike. And, uh, Thank you, Mike. And you know what? And I feel really bad because Mike sent that a couple of weeks ago and I didn't get to respond. But I'm here I am reading it on the uh, podcast. So maybe I should wait a little longer. Then he can actually hear it. And uh, yeah, then, uh, then that, that, that'll be. <laughs> hey, he never replied, but he went ahead and read my my email on the show well, thank you mike and uh we we love doing it and we're uh, really excited that it's uh inspiring people that's the whole reason we do it yes a- that and, and the money man the money's so good all that <laughs> podcast money are you kidding me oh that sweet podcast money is rolling money. in it's like <laughs> uh, anyway so ben i think we should get to the interview i think it's time for john let's Brawley. do it here's john brawley The Cinematography Podcast Interview. John Brawley, thank you so much for being on The Cinematography Podcast. Uh, It's very awesome to be here. I feel uh, unworthy considering the the caliber of your previous uh, guests. So thank you very much for having me. Um, Although I do feel like uh, I actually have known you and dealt with you for a long time through various means and forms. So uh, it's funny to formalize this relationship through this interview. I guess that's fair. I think you have a lot of false modesty. I absolutely think think you deserve to be on this show, and I'm so glad. And I'm going to, I think, just refer to you as John from now on, because you are uh, an old friend and a very old client of Hot Rod Cameras. In fact, I don't think you were quite so old to have uh, been my customer when I was in my garage, but I think the very first place I moved out of my garage, uh, we started working together, and uh, and I'm really glad that we've had such a long relationship. So, yeah, I think uh, so. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it was. I feel like it was some kind of PL adapter sometime back in the day or, or something it was. to that effect. I think, yeah. it was, I think it was a hot rod PL, and I think it was probably on the ver- used for like one of the very first uh, Blackmagic cameras. Yeah, well, actually, even I feel like even earlier than that, because I was using lots of different cameras. I mean, it's always been something I've I've done a lot is to be kind of camera agnostic I like to call it with lots of different types of cameras and so I was using uh, GH2s and uh, DVX100s uh, intermixing with other other cameras a lot so I feel like the first interaction that we had was probably pre-Blackmagic which is Oh, okay. That's that's possible. Yeah, yeah. Your memory is probably sharper than than mine on that, but that's uh that would have been about 2010. So, yeah. Well, very cool. So, John, I have sort of a stock question that I ask everyone when I start an interview, and I'm actually going to modify it a little bit this time because I get so many people always giving the the same answer and very few people giving, I think, the truthful answer. So I'm going to modify it a little, uh, which is I have a theory that to be a great DP, you have to be part artist and part plumber. You can't just be all artist. You can't just be all plumber. And by plumber, I don't necessarily literally mean plumber. I mean, uh, figuratively, I mean like a technician. You have to achieve your results by your, your technical knowledge versus just your artistic knowledge. And of course, it helps to have some of both. But where do you think you come on that spectrum? Where do you think you, you're at? Do you think that you use more technical information to, to craft your images? Do you use more like artistic sensibilities? Is it a combination right down the middle? Where, where, where do you fall in there? I wholeheartedly agree with your theory um, and I've got a slightly different way of thinking of it. And I would say, to answer your question, I, I think I would aspire to be both. But what I've always loved about cinematography and image making is that it's 
requires this kind of technical knowledge that's a bit esoteric and a bit arcane. It's sort of physics, it's kind of optics, it's sometimes photochemistry, but actually it's all in the service of a creative outcome. And no one in the audience cares other than the end result. They don't really care that you're in a field at two o'clock in the morning trying to work out if you had enough room in the, uh, the toe of your film to see anything in the image that you are creating because they just care about the emotional content of that end result. So I've, I've always thought it's kind of both. And that's what I've actually really loved about being a cinematographer is that it takes all this kind of techie, nerdy knowledge, but actually it's sort of irrelevant unless you apply it properly through the lens, metaphorically speaking, the lens of, the, of storytelling. You know, so you're using all of that information and that knowledge to translate words into pictures. You know, that's what's cool about it. And, you know, as, as something, I mean, when I was a kid, I was interested in so many different things and photography, which turned into cinematography for me, was kind of like the first thing that suddenly I, it, it didn't, I was never bored. I was always finding new ways and new techniques to do things and apply things. And that's what I love about it. You know, even though I've been doing this for quite some time now, every job is new, you know, it's different crew, it's in a different location, it's different gear, it's different widgets and things. And you, I, I just love that every job teaches me something new and shows me uh, how much I don't know. You know, I, I really, really enjoy that process. That, that's a big part of it for me. I think you did a great job answering that question and also dodging that question. Where, where do you personally think that you come down? Are you a little bit more technical, a little bit more artistic? I tell you what, where I think you are. I think you're a little bit more, more on, the, on the technical side. I, I would but say you might very disagree pragmatic, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's really hard to uh, look at your own self in a, in a critical way that, that you kind of talk about in, in a public way. I guess, you know, I think people would say of me that I'm very technical in terms of the basis, which I sort of shrug a little bit because I, I feel like I'm technical because I want to know that stuff so that I can apply it creatively. But, you know, I think the, the artist in me wants to say, yeah, it's the art, but the, the nerd in me is saying, oh, no, no, it's the tech, it's the tech. Well, uh, you gave me the exact answer I, I thought you were going to give me. So uh, that, that's that's wonderful. And I think I think that's great. So in service to the technical side, uh, and, we're, and we're not particularly a technical podcast, we, we talk a, a tiny bit of tech, but typically people don't want to hear about, you know, PD-150s and this stuff from, from, from ages ago. They want to hear about art, craft, and philosophy. And how does your technical training, technical education sort of philosophically inform your creative side uh do you do you feel that when you see tech it inspires you and you go like "Ooh, i want to figure out a way to use that or do you think that maybe it's it's something else i think that actually comes later for me i i like to be interested in image making process and actually process is a really important word for me because it actually you know for me the the journey for each project is different and, and you know most of my work has been in television but once you become involved in a show I really want to immerse myself in the storytelling world and what the the kind of tone of what what it is that you're trying to do and once you know that then you can start to apply technical processes but for me I think it's really about trying to figure out what is the story about like whose story are you telling and what is this story world all about and once you know and immerse yourself in the storytelling part of it, the creative part, then you can draw on whatever technical geekery you can. And usually, I mean, honestly, you can often justify any kind of technical approach through some way. But I think what you're trying to do is translate that later. And I, I feel like the most important thing for me is to understand 
tonally and creatively what kind of story it is that you're trying to tell. And, you know, the technology is kind of way down the line. In fact, more important to me when I say process is like, what is the, what is the manifesto that you're going to come up with? I, I usually create a document for each show that I work on, uh, which I, I kind of think of as a visual manifesto. And it's like visual rules or visual logic rules of how you're going to approach things. Now, it's not hard and fast. It's not saying you know that you can't break those rules but like I did a series a few years ago with a fantastic Australian director Glendon Ivan you know he's a wonderful photographer in his own right very strong visually as a director and he was sort of daring me like he's like well let's let's do it on one lens let's shoot this entire six episode series on just one focal length Uh, and it's like you know those are the kind of ideas you start kind of kicking around but they come out of trying to find a way to approach things because I think when you have structure that sort of means you can make choices and and decide on intention or intent with what you're doing so you know for me it's about accessing the story working out what it's about and then kind of visually responding drawing on your knowledge of tech and and whatever to kind of translate that into whatever those goals or that visual manifesto is and they change like for the great I did have a manifesto that we came up with and by the second third episode we started editing it and changing it you know because you go oh that didn't work or uh yep well you know we learned something there we need to do it like this so you kind of alter those things as you go but I think I think you need to have an intention when you when you start out and then you know see how it goes. I'm fascinated by this uh, idea of a visual manifesto. I mean, is, is this a document? Is it, yeah. uh, is it pictures? pictures is it, a, a it could tone? be pictures. A... It could be a document. I mean, I, I, it depends on each show. Honestly, the person who kind of inspired me to come up with this approach is Lars von Trier, you know, who I think oh, is wow. a really interesting director and filmmaker. And there's a great documentary that almost nobody has seen called The Five Obstructions of Lars von Trier. Have you seen it? You know the no, film I'm I'm talking not. about? No, I, I've it, never seen it. It's a it's a doco that he made where he essentially challenges his old film school lecturer to remake a film, a short film, with a different set of obstructions or rules. He calls them obstructions each time he remakes it. So the short film, the original short film, was a, a, actually an Academy short film winner in the '60s. And so 20 years later, he says to his lecturer hey, I'm going to challenge you, you're going to remake this film and I'm going to give you a different set of obstructions or rules each time. And they start off with crazy and just become really bizarre. And some of them are impossible and you think, there's no way he can make this film with this obstruction. And yet he find that this filmmaker finds a way to do it. So, you know, and I think what Lars is saying there is like the manifesto comes really from dogma, right? Not that I'm saying you know, dogma as a manifesto is what I'm adopting, but the idea of creating a set of rules for yourself to sort of define what you're doing. Uh, and that's all he was attempting, I think, with dogma. It wasn't to sort of make a political statement in particular. It was more like, well, let's just see what happens if I stick to these set of rules, if I, you know, if I make a film where there's no sets or if I, whatever those kind of films are that he makes, which are, I find are always kind of interesting. Uh, and they're the ones that kind of make me think, okay, what, what, what are the different decisions? You know, because I think, especially in TV, one of the greatest dangers is apathy. You know, when you're, I mean, I've done a, series, a season of a show for 22 episodes and by episode 18 with the 18th director that you've seen, like, you know, you're in a set that you're, you've shot in, you know, for 
10 months already, you've got to stay interested and engaged by the storytelling and not feel like, oh yeah, yeah, this is what we did, you know, six episodes ago. And, you know, so I, I think with, with something, with a structure like that, you can sort of try and f- keep yourself fresh and keep yourself kind of engaged and also give yourself some, some structure and some intention. And I think when you have those visual rules and visual logic, it d- helps you decide a lot of things. So for example, with The Great, uh, one of the things that we decided was to understand what time of day it was because a lot of uh, what we shot was on location. And, you know, we had a certain degree of naturalism. It's a period show. It's sort of 1860s. So the light sources are candlelight, firelight and daylight. You know, that's pretty much it. And so we decided that you would know it was the morning because there would be daylight, but the candles wouldn't be lit and they'd all be little stubs. But around two or three o'clock in the afternoon, the servants would come around and we even got the um, background extras to start doing this. They'd come around and start lighting the candles. So if you saw candles on, you would start to know, and I don't know if anyone ever realizes it, but if it's an afternoon scene, the candles are on when it's a day interior. If it's a day interior and the candles aren't on, it's probably in the morning. So, the, you know, just those kind of logic choices that you can make start becoming a part of the part of the document. And, you know, essentially you come up with a, a whole lot of rules or ideas uh, and they can be as kind of tech, as sort of technical like that or they can just be about compositional, you know, choices. So we decided that because this was Catherine's story, that Catherine would always be in the center of the frame, you know. So we shot two to one on the grate and she is always this kind of uh, beacon of hope uh, or light that, you know, uh, that people are eventually going to be inspired by. We meet her when she's really not even worked that out for herself yet. And that's going to be the wonderful journey over six seasons of this show is seeing her develop into the woman that we all know becomes Catherine the Great. But at this point in time, you know, she's just finding her way and she doesn't yet know what she's capable of. But we wanted you to understand as an audience who the, whose story this was. And it's a really simple choice. Just make sure that she's in the middle of the frame. Everybody else could have a little bit of looking room, but she would be always the center, you know, of the world, the center of attention. So, you know, just choices like that, that maybe her close-ups would always be by 15% a little bit closer than everybody else's because, you know, we were sort of signaling to the audience what's important to us and, you know, whose who's attention that we're kind of, and whose story that we're telling there. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think that, <laughs> that, that, that's, one, that's wonderful. Um, when creating this document, this visual manifesto, I assume this takes place in pre-production. This takes place long before you've ever, you've ever gotten to the set. And yeah. then maybe there's sort of a process of editing and, and modifying and, and discovering what it's going to be. Who gets involved in that? Is it, is it just you and the director? Is it you, the director, production designer? With the yeah. grade, it was, uh, it, it was, uh, there was a few parties because there was actually, it's the first time in a while that I've worked with two cinematographers, so Maya Jamojda. Uh, BSC was the other cinematographer that uh, worked with me alternating on the great so we kind of worked it up together and often I'll start as a kind of I'll throw out a bunch of ideas and they're really questions you know about how do we want to respond to what measuring what time of day it is in the set to take it back to our candle example or how do we want to treat Catherine how do we want to see her visually you know how do we want to you know there's a a, almost on every one of them is a question about how dark is dark like because you know every (laughs) every showrunner and every studio has a different opinion about what dark means Uh, I've started avoiding it as a word because it just uh, scares people too much (laughs) how moody do you want this to be you know would be really the kind of question so you, you end up asking a lot of those questions either 
either in person or an email form. And, you know, every show is different, but I take usually might take my clues and answers from the showrunners who usually have very strong opinions about these things as the, as the writers and often the establishing directors as well. So those initial conversations that you're having about, again, like big picture questions about what kind of story you're telling, you know, uh, and tonally what that is. And often, this is going to sound strange, well, a lot of the time when I'm getting involved in shows, I find actually the conversation's already started when you got a call about the job to interview, you know, because usually, it's funny, we could do a whole episode on interviews, couldn't you? I mean, usually there's the, the, when you get an interview with people that you don't know, they're looking to see what kind of take you have on the story. And so in the interview process, I'll ask for as much material as I can if there's a script, if there's a pilot that's already been shot, I want to look at the pilot and then I can talk about, you know, what are the choices that you made and what are the choices that you want to keep? Often they're, they're different, you know, because a pilot's like a prototype, right? I mean, it's part of the kind of creative process to go, well, we tried this and it didn't work. You know, with The Resident, for example, if you look at the pilot of that, I did two seasons of that show, but not the pilot. I inherited a whole lot of choices. And this is a common thing, you know, that the, the pilot DP has uh, made those choices with the director uh, and you inherit all of these choices, but you don't necessarily keep them all you know you find out that things work or don't work so if you look at the pilot episode you're going to notice that there's all these kind of dutch tilts in it and uh, i had a sit-down meeting with elliot who's very generous and talked about making those choices and i was lucky enough to also work with the pilot director a very well-known australian director by the name of philip noyce and uh, he was returning to do an episode unusually so normally pilot director dp they'll sort of do the pilot they rock star in and then they leave and then uh, us, uh, you know, troops in the trenches kind of finish the show out. But uh, Philip was coming back and um, I got to interrogate Philip and I got to interrogate Elliot about this choice. You know, why, like, I, I just couldn't understand the logic. There's all these Dutch tilts on close-ups. And I mean, it turned out there wasn't a logic. It was just something that sort of evolved and happened in the moment because I tried to subscribe all this kind of meaning. It's like, is it about what's happened? And maybe uh, in terms of the scene dramatically, that, you know, that choice that, that, that happened and is it maybe in the edit that it wasn't being followed through and it was more like just you know that's just what happened <laughs> so <laughs> you'll notice i think i think for episode two there's a few dutch tilt shots in there but then it just disappears as a kind of visual uh, vernacular from from the show because it's it's just not wasn't useful you know in terms of shooting the show it was just something that was tried so you know i think you're often prototyping things and when you're going through an interview they're looking to see what your take is and what your response is and i find you know it's really a conversation you know i don't i don't ever go to an interview and think this is how it's going to be done and pitch a kind of a take. I, I kind of want to talk about what is the story about? What are the ideas and show that I understand the storytelling tenets of what, what, what there is that's, that it's all been based on and I understand the themes because everything else comes from that. If you understand what story it is that you're telling, then, you know, you can, everything else kind of will flow on from, from there. So, you know, for me, the, it, that conversation starts <laughs> at the interview. And so if you get the job, then presumably they like what you are saying and, and the kind of questions you're asking. And it just keeps on evolving. So, you know, you talk to the showrunner, you ask those questions, and then you 
start talking to the production designer and asking them questions about you know how they see uh, the world developing and what their ideas are. And I start trying to incorporate those ideas and have a, a, a kind of two-way conversation about you know what are the lighting sources. So you know we had a lot of talk on the grate about what kind of candles we do. I mean half of my testing I can send you some really boring videos of single wick, double wick, triple wick candles of this color, that color. I mean, I think, I believe we went through a hundred, nearly a hundred thousand candles on uh, on 10 episodes of The Great. I mean, I wouldn't have believed it was that many, but it, we, you know, we burned through a lot literally because, you know, um, we, we tried different things. So, you know, in testing, I, I, with the production designer, we look at the color of the candle itself. And for me, obviously, sometimes I want doubles, sometimes I want singles. And so they've got to make sure that they've, they've got the right kind of combination. So, you know, there's that kind of, you know, crossover that we talked about of something that's kind of technical because you've worked out that a double wick candle at two feet, you know, gives you enough level for a, a T2 stop, but then it doesn't look right on camera. And is this the right spot to Put the candle. I guess those are the kind of conversations that kind of get intermixed uh, with that document. So does it add a new level of complexity to have another person come in? Does it have another DP to have a Maya there from the beginning? Or is it is it welcome to have another opinion? Uh, honestly, uh, it's always a bit nervous because it's like you're sort of being forced to go on a date with someone, um, whether you like it or not. Uh, and you, you just hope that you can kind of uh, see eye to eye. And I, you know, I think Maya did a great job in terms of that. And I actually really relied on her because she had a lot more local knowledge. It was my first time working in London. Uh, and, you know, she was uh, Polish originally, but she's a London local. And so she knew a lot of the crew. And so she helped me out a lot with, uh, you know, when we were talking about crew and who to, um, who to bring on. You know, and that's one of the big challenges these days, too, with, with so much content being made and TV being done, it's, it's really difficult to put together a crew, especially if like me, you know, you're traveling uh, and you're just sort of parachuting into a, uh, a new city and you're like, right, who's around, you know, and you don't have a relationship with anyone. You've got to try and very quickly establish uh, a creative relationship with heads of department, with gaffers and with grips and with camera operators and to bring them all on board and uh, get them to understand the way you want to work. And this is again, where something like a visual manifesto document can help. I actually share that document with the makeup and wardrobe people. I share that with uh, everyone because then they all, uh, there's a kind of understanding of what you're trying to achieve. And in terms of keeping everyone informed, I think the more open you are and the more you share what you're trying to do and not try and play a protectionist arcane logic of being the kind of keeper of secrets i think if you if you're open about it then it also lets people contribute to that you know especially in my own crew i mean i i don't want to micromanage everyone to the detail of what it is i'd much rather people understand what the what the goal is and they can find their own path their own way to get to that you know and often they'll do it in a way that's much better than I can ever figure out for them to do. So, you know, I, I think that's a really important part of the kind of leadership that you have when you're, when you're in a, a job like this, where you have, you know, big departments, multiple units and multiple DPs. If you're the you know, lead DP and so on, you're trying to sort of establish uh, a tone and an approach, you know, and you want to sort of have that kind of keep on, keep on going when you're not there. 
All right, we're just going to dive in headlong into into the great now because we've basically been sort of talking about it from the beginning. But it does look great. It feels like a big show, a show that you would see on uh, in a large pay cable television network. Hulu has been uh, p- producing incredible, incredible stuff. I think I first the first made for Hulu thing I saw was eleven twenty two sixty three, and this is no different. It feels like a very large budget. It feels like a very large scope. But what's really interesting to me, perhaps, about the great more than almost anything else, more than than all of the visual work, is the tone of the series. And I know that you can't get a tone like that unless everyone is pulling together. It's not just these isolated silos of like, oh, camera department is over here doing their thing. Oh, art department is doing their thing. Oh, the talent and the director is doing their thing. Everyone really has to be in sync to get the, the tone of something like this exactly right. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Otherwise, it doesn't it feels like someone's in the wrong show. Someone's in the wrong story. And there's such a nice unity across everything where the, the slightly irreverent, but yet serious, all these sorts of things interplaying together. How much of a conversation was tone? Uh, was the tone of how the piece is going to all fit uh, from the beginning? You, you mentioned tone early on, and I, I, have, I feel like that is one of the most distinctive qualities of the show. You don't see this sort of tone every day, and it hits it just right. How does this tone come about? Uh, it's it's a challenge because you know the tone really comes from Tony Mac or Anthony McNamara is his actual name. He's another Australian, and it, this is actually my fourth show with him as the writer. So I've I've done a few other shows with him, and this show in particular, it very much is his voice. And you see a lo- in a lot of Peter, believe it or not, is Tony. You know, nobody's actually picked it up in the reviews yet, but he is a. I don't know if you noticed what a foodie. He is, he's obsessed by food. That That's actually Tony writing about himself. He, he is obsessed by food as well. Um, but I mean, I've known him for a long time. He has a really unique voice. So when you read his script, it really comes off the page. His scripts are always the best scripts to read. And I, I guess had an inkling of that tone because uh, he also did another show that's probably not that well known outside of Australia called Puberty Blues, um, which was a, another period show, but set in the 70s in, uh, in Australian sort of misogynistic surf culture about these two young girls who are sort of navigating uh they're they're teenagers and they're sort of navigating all the all the firsts of adolescence of you know having your first uh, drink of alcohol having smoking your first cigarette having your first kiss all of those kind of milestones that are important that that's kind of puberty blues but the the tone is actually very similar if you go back and look at a show like that where the and also the vernacular or the language the way he uses it is also really specific to that that particular little subculture so you know i think tony's really interested in in a shakespearean way in the way that not only the actual words, but the way they actually sound and, and go together. Funnily enough, uh, people probably know Tony's work from The Favourite as well. That's what he's most well-known for, where he, he got an Oscar nomination. But I believe um, the way he told me was that this actually came first in terms of it. The, there's a lot of similarities with The Favourite. And it was after Yorgos kind of read this script for this for The Great that he was like, oh, let's do The Favourite in that style. And so then it was kind of uh, adapted over. But, you know, so the tone, the tone for Tony was really everything I mean everything so you know when you're working in the UK I mean it's the home of period drama you know those kind of epic historically accurate shows and all of the brilliant craftspeople and the the set dresses they all want to do it exactly right they want it to be historically accurate and perfect and Tony 
did not want that at all. You know, he talked a lot about this being punk, period, you know, or anti-history. Uh, and even at the beginning of the show, you'll see that in the credit, uh, in the title, it says occasionally true because he just wants to remind people that we're not telling a true story. We're just entertaining. Uh, and this is about a story world, not not the kind of uh, a true depiction of events. And I guess you could argue, you know, with any piece of history that no one was there, so they don't really know how accurate it is anyway. But, you know, he was really decidedly didn't want to be bound by those things. So there's an episode where Peter goes jogging. If you look at what he's wearing, he's kind of wearing a hoodie, a tracksuit hoodie, like as if that would really exist in 1860s Russia. I mean, they're really subtle moves, but they're just reminding everyone, this is not real. This is satire and, and, and it's done for um, comic effect. And we want, we want to just keep reminding people that you know, we're, not, we're not beholden to this idea of truth or facts. But strangely enough, we did uh, uh, have a kind of a naturalism that he wanted. So, you know, he almost, he basically said to me, in fact, one of the manifesto rules is like no crane shots. So if you look at the, <laughs> if you look at the show, you'll struggle to remember any big epic sweeping crane shots because they're part of the visual language of period drama shows, which we are not. You know, we didn't want, I mean, there, there's the Helen Mirren version of Catherine the Great story. We want it to be the opposite of that. You know, we wanted to do something that was entirely different and not and not apologize for it and not try and hide it. So, you know, part of the kind of MO that we had to come up with and that he wanted me to do was like resist the urge to do period stuff. You know, one of the changes that I made to my manifesto or to our manifesto was to say, we're not gonna use smoke. You know, there was quite a lot of smoke and atmosphere used in the pilot episode. But if you look at period shows, they are all filled with smoke and atmosphere. and we just kind of went, it's kind of like this trope or cliche of, of period drama to have all this smoke and atmosphere. It's like, let's, let's get rid of that crutch. Let's not have it. So by episode two, there's no smoke. Well, there's some natural smoke because, you know, if you've got 100 candles burning in the room, it does build up a little bit. But it's, we never went through and added any smoke, you know, because it's just, it just becomes such a cliche and it's such a kind of, it's a crutch really for that. And it's also a way of saying to the audience, Hey, this is visually different, and it's not—it's not the period drama you've seen up until this point. So, you know, Tony was very strong about those opinions. He—he he didn't have the technical kind of uh, nous to be able to say what what he wanted specifically, but he really reacted strongly if he felt like it was veering towards a traditional approach to period drama or or a traditionally cinematic feel. You know, he wanted it to feel very contemporary and very modern. You know. And it just so happened that, you know, they're in these kind of crazy dresses that meant they couldn't get through a doorway properly. But but the but the style of storytelling and the, the kind of accessibility of it should feel very contemporary and very modern. And, you know, I think he did a great job of, of establishing that. It really does merge sort of a, a costume drama and modern satire in a lovely way. And how much discussion was there, maybe there was none, uh, about modern parallels with sort of the uh, political climate in the United States right now? Was this, uh, was this ever? Uh, no, I mean, <laughs> weirdly, when, I mean, I, it's, it's so uh, prescient to, to watch it and draw those conclusions. And I, I mean, I had a little inkling that you could make those connections, but it, it wasn't as strong as it sort of appears to be now. And I, honestly, I don't think that the intention was to make commentary, but I think, I think Tony would say that, you know, these kinds of leaders have been around all throughout history. Uh, and, and, and I guess it's an example of history maybe um, 
having some repetition because you know you, you start to recognize the same sort of um, qualities uh, and ideals and I think if people project that onto uh, onto Peter I mean you know that I think that's just great writing because you, you kind of make those parallels and connections I don't think it was really overt because you know this story existed as a play Tony wrote this as a play I think early 2000s you know and it was a film for a long time for about 10 years he was developing it as a film and I think uh, it went through various iterations and then it was only in the last few years it sort of became a uh, converted into a TV series and Elle became involved and um, and it blossomed from there. So, you know, all those kind of thematic ideas, I think, have always been in the script, but it's just, it's uh, I guess it's it's relevant because, you know, it's, it's a very open story in that way, you know, because we, we've been through these kinds of times before. I think it's a really interesting aside that you happened to mention a few minutes ago is that the tone of the favorite was essentially uh, originally captured inside the grate and then adapted to that because you can see they feel like cousins to me. They, they feel a little bit like cousins. It's not exactly the same tone, but the tone in the grate really has a combination of contemporary humor and sort of classical setting in a way that really meshes well together, whereas I think the favorite might have a bit more cynicism. It's a different sort of tone. It's not exactly the same. It's a cousin of it. But I have to say that the broad audience appeal of The Great, I find, I mean, the people at Hulu must be very happy because more than once now, just sort of like in casual conversation I'm having with people uh, or I've been out in public, have I heard someone say huzzah and saying it with the particular sort of... We were of, all saying um, it on set. I mean, within I, like the first week, everyone was like huzzah. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is just going to never wear off. And now, of course, the rest of the world, as you say, is everyone is saying it, so... So, so yeah, there, there, there seems to be almost like a cultural zeitgeist that is captured now from, uh, from the great. There's an imitation that's going on in the sincerest form of flattery. I hear people mimicking Peter, mimicking uh, Nicholas's uh, performance of huzzah to almost end any sentence. So, uh, that, which is, which is, uh, I think, I think wonderful. And that's kind of like the fun stuff about the work that you get to do in this industry is that you have a cultural impact. Yeah, it's wonderful to see how people take that on. I mean, I saw a meme today of um, Peter smashing a glass and saying huzzah, comparing it with uh, Trump's drinking of his glass of water and throwing it away from his, from his rally as well. So, you know, people are making those uh, connections. And it's great because I think, you know, when you have a canvas like that where people project those kind of things on there, um, you know, it, it's wonderful to see those things having a life of their own. I don't know if you know of the image of L flipping the bird, which which is the the poster. Totally image. anachronistic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was a very candid. That was actually a photo that I took on set as a very oh, candid wow. moment where she was just in the pink dress. That that pink dress. It's amazing from from the final episode, and she just kind of. I was just there, and she kind of flipped the bird like in this very formal way. And uh, both of us are like, wow, that's like says everything about the show because it's sort of period and, and but it's it's very irreverent as well. And sort of uh, flipping off the viewer, like saying we're not really taking ourselves kind of uh, <laughs> as seriously as normally this style of wardrobe and costume would be. And then they ended up using that image as the poster image. And now I'm seeing that image come back as like, fan art there's all these people making kind of versions of that uh, as as an image so it's wonderful to see how much of a life it has and how well it's traveled considering you know this is my first job for hulu and as you said they've got a great track record for really making some great shows but i i wasn't that aware of um 
you know, how, uh, how much of a presence they had. So it's great to see how much reach the show has had. And, you know, it's aired in Australia now. It's uh, just started airing in the UK. So, you know, I think uh, I really get the sense that it, it's traveled really well and people have sorted out. So it's great. And it's really nice to uh, have a show be exposed to as many people as, uh, as it has and be loved. So, you know, that, that's great. Uh, I want to talk about a, a few other things. I mean, it's wonderful to talk about the grade. I really enjoyed the series uh, from beginning to end. But in, in the time we've got left here, uh, I want to ask you about sort of what else is going on. IMDb reports that you did a TV movie called Gone Baby Gone. I'm unfamiliar with this. Is this... Um... Uh, that's, I guess, the IMDb uh, trap of reporting a pilot that never goes. And, you know, oh. uh, but I thought it worked really well and it tested really well. It should have been a good show, but Fox in the end, didn't have room in their programming schedule. They'd also, at, the, at that point in time, I think they bought, they just got the rights to a sporting event. I want to say basketball. I mean, I wish I could keep up more with the, how it all works, but essentially they had a whole lot more sports programming, less room for drama. They already had a cop show. So Gone Baby Gone was gone. <laughs> really not because of whether the work was any good or not, just because they, you know, the rules had changed about what they wanted to do. So, you know, it was a really fascinating kind of process to go through and to work on a pilot uh, and do that, which was my, my first ever, you know, chance to actually do a pilot. And sadly, you know, it will never get seen probably. And I'm sure there's probably going to be uh, a network someday that will, that will just screen pilots of shows that will never get made because there must be a lot of them out there. And I, I think it, it, the choices that happen and the reasons they get picked up or not get picked up uh, seem to be far beyond the scope of whether the show is actually any good. The, the Television Academy in North Hollywood actually uh, occasionally does that. They, they, they have a, a series, I want to say it's called Too Good for TV. All right. And it's, it's mostly pilots. That, yeah, uh, that, I would love that, to see that because I feel go. like yeah. it, had nothing to, it has nothing to do with the choice of whether the show is actually any good or not and, and all to do with you know, other, other circumstances, which you know, are just beyond your control and you, you can't foresee. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, John, uh, th- this has really been wonderful. I've really enjoyed our, our conversation. I know you must have some sort of presence on social media or a website or something out there. Where can people find you if they want to reach out about uh, your work or uh, see some of the stuff you're doing? Uh, well, Instagram, I've been I've been throwing a lot of photos up there from behind the scenes from The Great and other previous shows. I think that's uh, always a nice place to present work. I haven't been very good lately, but I, I do like to write about philosophical stuff and, and some of the technical stuff as well uh, on my blog. But uh, but that's that I, I actually I did post a whole lot of footage there from uh, the testing on uh, on the great uh, that we did. So uh, if you want to go and download, I think there's about 80 gig worth of camera original wow. files from a Venice and a DXL, you can do that as well from my uh, my test at the beginning. And I, I like sharing that kind of material as well. So they're, they're probably the two places to come find me. Oh, fantastic. Well, we'll put the links to those things in the show notes at our website, Cam Noir. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show. It really was a delight. Thank you. All right. So that was uh, cinematographer John Brawley. John, thank awesome. you. Yeah. Thank you for coming out. And I cannot wait to do it again and talk about more stuff. Absolutely. Maybe even in person one of these days. In 2025. 2025. <laughs> no, no <laughs> I, I, I really think it'll be less than that. I don't know how I much less. Hope. Who knows? Anyway, Elliot, you know what time it must be now. Ooh. I'm stealing your line. Ooh. This is your line. Is it my line? <laughs> okay. it, uh, I'm st- I've stolen your line. It's time to pay the bills. It is bill hit paying me. time. All right. Hit me with your with your aperture story. 
I want to talk about Aperture's new Spotlight mount. Spotlight is an optic-based ellipsoidal attachment for their popular lights, and you're probably scratching your head going, ellipsoidal? What's an ellipsoidal? Sometimes they're also called Leco's. Sometimes they're I was called... about to say, Leco's. I yeah. mean, come on. Come on, man. But you know what? Our we're listeners t- are not all necessarily like lighting here. technicians. They're not all of okay. them. So look, I'm not a lighting technician. When I was a sophomore in high school and I learned like technical theater, the first thing I learned were Fresnel and Lico lights. That's right. Okay. So, uh, Lico lights, typically you'd have to go out and buy a light that's got this, uh, whole front end unit to it with, uh, cutters and gobo frames and optics and different sorts of things. Uh, Aperture sort of rewriting the playbook here. They're now making this Lico attachment called a spotlight mount, and you can put it in front of their 120 and 300 series lights. And it's really cool. It gives you a super, super hard focused beam of light that you can do all the typical uh, Lico attachment fun stuff to. So yeah. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. And it has three different, uh, three different beam focuses so you can get different attachments uh, for it. It's uh, it's really powerful. It's super cool. Uh, highly, highly recommend if you know what a Lico is and you know the power of being able to shoot a hard beam of light like over actors' heads into a bounce card and then back into, you know, your, your talent, then uh, then this is for you. And it's really wonderful because it's not terribly expensive. Also available at Hot Rod Cameras if you are in the market for such things. Can you tell us how much it is? The Aperture Spotlight mount with a 19-degree lens retails for $499. It's in stock at Hot Rod Cameras, and it's super awesome. Now, you can't do anything with just the mount. You have to have a light to attach to it. But uh, for an extra 500 bucks, you've now completely changed your 300 or your 120 into no, that, something else. That and is a big deal. That, yeah. That's a really big deal. And you can also get the 26 and the, the 36 uh, degree spots as well. But uh, 19 is, uh, is pretty popular. Excellent. No, that's really cool. I'm always excited when uh, theater tech and film tech run together. And I know, you know, lights are lights and you can use them for anything. But I'm so used to, le- you know, theater kind of lights. I wonder if any uh, theaters are using aperture lights. I wonder if they cater to them at all. I, I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, the, the the theater world seems to kind of have their their set brands, and they're very much uh, for theater. So there is some crossover, but but yeah, I, I don't know. Good question. I wonder. Just hmm. very interesting. And now short ends. Anyway, Ilya, it is time for short ends. It sure is. Uh, my short end this week is actually a really cool app i know it's weird but you can actually buy an app for your sound devices audio recorder they have a plugin i mean it's, it's really it's got one option which is all you do with this plugin you have one level but it's called noise assist and noise assist essentially is some very smart and here we are talking about ai again but it's very it's very smart it's a very smart uh and there's no learning required actually for this it's not like you know machine learning or anything like that it only introduces one millisecond of latency but essentially what it does is you can pl- put this into your your mixer recorder device like the uh, sound devices mix pre 2 series here i have thrown around so much jargon and terminology without even actually saying what the whole thing does noise assist takes away background noise and so like right now i'm listening to uh, my zoom recorder which is a you know very inexpensive recorder and there's a hiss there's some buzz there's there might be a little bit of uh sound coming through through the open window noise assist is very smart and can recognize different sorts of undesirable sounds like a compressor running in your refrigerator or any sort of like you know wind sort of noise and then there's a little little adjustment and you can adjust the amount of levels of volume levels of db you would like to attenuate that noise and essentially what it does is it goes okay i see i know what that noise is and it's limiting that and it makes it essentially drop out kind of like magic so the people who i think actually 
could use this more than anyone are the people who are mixing sound on location, maybe a two person crew somewhat, you know, you've got a camera guy and a sound guy having a mix pre two with this $300 plugin app that, uh, helps get rid of the noise, noise assist is, is brilliant. And you know, you can only get it directly from sound devices. We sell sound devices, uh, mixers and, and all of that sort of stuff. But, uh, the plugin is available from them directly. They, they do it off of their website. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a uh, two different versions of this. They have a higher end series of mixer and I believe it's more expensive. I think it's $600 for that one. And then for the less expensive one, I think it's only 300 bucks. So, which is, which is awesome. It's not bad. Neither of those prices are bad for what you're describing. I mean, think of how many hours you would take uh, fixing the sound of a refrigerator that somebody neglected to unplug in post. If you could just dial it out on the day, that would be pretty amazing. Yes, indeed. Pretty damn amazing. I think I might have been with you at NAB the first or second year I ever went. It was I was either with you or George Riscala, and uh, we were at an Adobe thing where they were showing an older version of Audition, which is actually the software we use to edit this podcast. And they showed spectral audio view where you could literally paint out the part of a waveform you didn't like in this kind of spectral view and use basically Photoshop tools to suture it. And I remember at the time thinking like, you know, it's like it was kind of like sorcery because you could say, OK, there's a siren going by in the background. Well, we can just, you know, you can see it on the waveform and just lose it. But uh, I think it's amazing that that kind of technology is now in the production gear. So you can, you know, it's, it's something like that. It's a smart version of that idea from whatever, 15 years ago. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that was a very cool visual method. I don't think I was was with you when I saw that. But uh, when I did see that, I was I was pr- pretty blown away. And uh, you must have been with George. I have to say now that as a user of Audition, rarely do I ever use that, but I have used it. <laughs> It's pretty cool that I go like, oh, what? where's that sound? Oh, I can visually see it. I'm just going to bloop, blop. You know, the trick gone. is just friggin' record your sound right the first time and you don't have to worry about stuff like that. But I remember when we were recording at your old location in Hollywood, kind of near the police department, every now and then we'd have... <laughs> That's true. Right by the, you know, right across the street. <laughs> Roman Vasyanov would be, you know, telling, dishing on some amazing stuff from End of Watch and I would hear a cop car go by and I was able a couple of times to paint those out here and there. Sometimes I would be like, eh, it's just going to, you're going to hear a cop car going by, but you can get some of that kind of stuff out if you, uh, if you have enough patience and, uh, audition is, you know, I understand pro tools is the industry standard, but auditions pretty good. Anyway, that's a total diversion from the sound devices add on you were talking about. Yeah. And, uh, you can find out more at the sound devices website. In fact, there's some very nice videos, which give you example of how the uh, noise assist plugin works and their full list of products and things, which is all really fun. So if you are a sound person, uh, give it, you know, in particular, give it, give it a look. Maybe, uh, maybe one of these days I will, uh, upgrade here and then I could use the, you know, here from, from my, my bedroom where I'm recording this right now, I could throw that in and that hissing that's obnoxious behind me right now would, would fall away, would disappear. And I could get rid of the sound of my computer, but you know, I feel like it adds character. <laughs> All right, Ben, what's, what's your short end, uh, this week? So my short end is something that I have to admit upfront. I don't, it, I, I hope that I'm not about to open up a can of worms at all because I don't really know very much about these people, but I stumbled across cause I'm always watching videos on, you know, how to this or that on, uh, YouTube. 
and I stumbled across a series of deep dive interviews from a channel called Film Courage. They also have a website and uh, they have pretty deep interviews with several screenwriting gurus. Now, as a giant fan of the Script Notes podcast with Craig Mazin and John August, they have our disdain for any screenwriting gurus because, you know, it costs a lot of money to take their classes and blah, blah, blah. And I feel like these guys are, are you know, they're so good at what they do, uh, John August and Craig Mazin, that they don't see the value in kind of hearing like, okay, here's how you break this thing down. I just stumbled into it and I started watching them and I found each one really interesting and they're, some of them are long, you know, some of them are over an hour long which is sort of like listening to a long-form podcast like ours, uh, except with screenwriting gurus or working writers. It's it's just very interesting. So again, I don't really know much about Film Courage. I hope that they're not, you know, a multi-level marketing organization trying to sell people <laughs> tires. I don't really know anything about them. Uh, I've just really been digging these uh, interviews with these screenwriting. Uh, it's screenwriting gurus and screenwriters and people who have interesting uh, and nuanced and often very different opinions about the craft of screenwriting. So anyway, that's, that's what it is. Writers having something to say, who knew? I mean, come who on. Who knew? <laughs> Especially in, in this town. Something to Especially say. Especially on YouTube. <laughs> uh, Film Courage, I, I'm not familiar with them. I will check it out. I will take a look. Who knows? And, maybe, and by the way, maybe one I day you'll if, be on Film Courage. Maybe. Dare <laughs> to dream. Um, <laughs> and uh, if they are weird or something, please let me know. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll stop. Know. We'll stop promoting them. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying that there's none of my uh, alerts went up. When it's just, I just have never heard of them, and suddenly they have all these massive long interviews with with uh, screenwriting gurus, and I'm digging them. So nice. So that's that. That's a ringing endorsement if I've ever heard. If it's not an MLM, then uh, <laughs> really <laughs> as, enjoying as it. As long as it isn't uh, Amway somehow. <laughs> it's um, federated products. It's a different level of product. <laughs> Sorry, my reference to go there, but you clearly got it. So I did as a John August fan. Was that John August? John August wrote Go. Oh my God. It was directed by Doug Lyman. Uh, yes, indeed. But how it all just came full circle right there because I was not, I did not know that John August wrote Go. And like, how funny that, is that? I think if I'm not mistaken, I think that might've been his first produced screenplay. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. I, had, I, had, I had no idea. And it it's really quite entertaining. If you haven't it, seen the 1999 movie Go, go see it. No pun intended. You, you go, gotta go stay current, it. man. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that, it's got, that it's got not- your Jay Moore. It's got your Sarah Polly. It's got everything. And, and, you know, some, some really fantastic, very, very memorable uh, scenes, including the scenes with uh, William uh, Fitchner as a uh, Burke Havelson, Havelson, Havelson. He is an actor who always delivers the goods. Can I just say, I've never seen, I've never been bored by William Fitchner. Yeah, he is. He's incredible. His part is so great. And I will actually go out and say that several of the other people in the, the movie who maybe I'm not the, the biggest fan of, I feel like they give, they give and give and give. And it is, no. uh, it's uh, for some of them, maybe their most memorable roles. It'd be fun me. to, it'd be fun to go back and watch it again and see, you know, like what holds up and what doesn't. Yeah, from, it, it may not now. So, <laughs> but who knows? Know. And uh, William Fitchner's wife is Jane Krakowski. So, uh-huh. and, uh, and she's also great. And then, you know, Jay Moore and, you know, Scott Wolf, a bunch of other people in there. So, Sarah Polly, Sarah as Pauly. mentioned. Yes, of course. Love Sarah Polly. Tay Diggs, you know, a lot of people. Yeah. Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, so Ben, I think that just about does it. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, please go to benrockonline.com. That's where you can you can check out my work. You can maybe even click at the bottom and, and all of my social media things are there. And you can uh, find me on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn. 
big important very important to network with people on linkedin you can't get enough of that ben will not try to sell you an offboard motor for your boat that will not happen <laughs> i am not no if you want that you need to go to benrock.com yes benrock.com for all your boating needs <laughs> yes. actually currently there is nothing at benrock.com sorry that, that's true and, Form, and formerly about, a about website a, about boats about two months ago i actually reached out to the owners of it and uh once again said can i can i please have this domain it is my name. I promise I will I will put it in writing that I will never sell anything to do with boats. Uh, they probably just ignored you or gave you a big middle finger. What was it? Never heard back from them. Yeah. They're not using it. They're not using it. It's the simple truth. So, Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. We are there these days uh, in some capacity. We are uh, letting people into the store by appointment. And uh, we're doing curbside pickup for the people who who must have their uh, their aperture, their mix pre's, or any other sort of production or post-production gear. We, we, we've got a bunch of stuff in there right now. Excellent. Well, and who do we need to thank this week? Let's thank our producer, Alana Cody. Thank you, Alana. Alana Cody, kicking all the ass. Asses, asses have been kicked. For sure. Uh, let's Let, thank, uh, let's thank Ben Rock. <laughs> yeah, I know. Don't thank you me. just give me this look like what, what? No. Okay. No, thank Why ben. would you thank me? Okay. Don't thank me. Uh, I, that my, my withdraw my thanks. Uh, let's then, you should. let's instead thank Kay Zalatrachi. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Kay's, who is not listening to this currently, but he can be found at musicbykays.com. Even though Kay's does so much more than music now, it's kind of getting insane to list all of it. Yeah. He needs to change his web domain music and visual effects and everything by case.com yeah, everything by case actually i think that's that might be available you should take that everything. probably i should just go get that and then sell it to oh him. that's right you should totally he's such a good friend you should squat that I and should, then pitch it totally. to him and that's then say idea. it can be yours for only 19.99 only five million dollars wow he is a good friend. He is. <laughs> All right. We got to thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz. Ben Katz. Yes. Uh, well, welcome to LA. Whenever you get here, Ben, maybe you'll be editing this in the, the car on the way down. Welcome back to LA. We're, we're so excited to have you back. Even though we can't be in the same room with you. So even though we're not allowed to, uh, you, you might as well be in Seattle, Ilya. I'm, I'm not going anywhere near you. Thinking about moving. <laughs> maybe Seattle is in my future. <laughs> Seems nice. It's not that cold. I found out. Like I thought I was afraid Seattle would be freezing cold. Apparently it doesn't get that cold in Seattle. I was there two years ago. It was lovely. It's really nice. I love Seattle. Great, great city. Totally. My good go friend, back. Seth Wolfson. I, uh, uh, if anyone is, is in Seattle, uh, there's an escape room, uh, <laughs> called get Hourglass escape escapes. room right now. I'm totally going to plug <laughs> Seth's escape room. It's called Hourglass escapes. What theme is it? Is it a horror themed? It is. Okay. So again, I'll say it one more time. It's called Hourglass escapes. It's in Seattle. And, uh, I shot all the video for his evil dead Two themed escape room. And uh, my good did. friend, of course, you my did. good friend Donald Tom Scapello uh, came back, uh, came out. He's living in Canada right now in Vancouver. He came down and played Ash for us. Nice. And so we we recreated some uh, Evil Dead Two stuff. And also another friend of mine, uh, Yuri Lowenthal, who's an amazing video game voice actor. He's an amazing actor, but he does video game voices for most of his living. Did uh, some work for that as well as the recording of Doctor Novi, the uh, the guy who. Uh, who, who unleashes all the demons in Evil Dead land. So if you're still listening to the sound of my voice and you're in Seattle and you're allowed to go to escape rooms, check out the Evil Dead to escape room. I, I, I don't think that people are going to be allowed, but but let me ask you this. Can you find can you find any of these videos online anywhere? Are they on the website to promote it? And does oh, the, yeah. does the Ash, does the person playing Ash have a chainsaw strapped to his arm? He does. He does, in fact, have that. Although uh, I believe it was contractual that we were not allowed to even impersonate Bruce Campbell. So 
okay. Donald Donald kind of did what he does. He ca- he came out and made the character his own. He was great. Fantastic. All right. Cool. All right, Ben. I think that just about does it for this week. We will be back next week with another incredible episode. Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing. Right. You, got, you can't follow that. All right. I can't. No, that was that. Just that's how you wrap shit up, man. Is that All right, how, cool? Is that how you do it? Okay. I guess we're wrapped. Then. All right. <laughs> we'll see you and, next week. Until next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.